Welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. I'm Brendan Burns, and I interview and share the stories of high performers, happiness engineers, and people who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, pro athletes, and entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy instead of status or money. In each episode, we share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Hey everyone, Brendan Burns here with another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. So excited to be joined by Dr. Bridget Cooper, who has been telling me all about her awesome TED Talk experience, her past, overcoming amazing things or crazy things and doing amazing things with that, I should say. And Dr. Bridget Cooper, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brent. It's great to be here. I absolutely, I mean, anybody who's tuning into this show is tuning into the show, not only for the information, but for your, oh my goodness, energy that comes through the screen. Like I, people talk to me about bottling it. I mean, honestly, you could create a black market operation with Brendan <laughs> Burns level energy, right? So. Oh, I appreciate that. It's funny. I used to do these live webinars and I have a trampoline in the back <laughs> and I'll pull the trampoline and I'll be like jumping up and down. And I remember I did one. It's funny. So so when you do webinars, like you do them live for a while and then you take right. the one that sold the most product, the best one, and yep. you make that your like evergreen, the one that you keep using because it converted the best. Right. And the, the one that did the best, I was in Chile earlier this year and I got back on like two hours of sleep and I like landed at JFK at four, got home at five. I had a webinar at seven <laughs> and I did the webinar thinking like, whatever, I don't want to lose out on the money and you know, I'm tired, but I kind of, it was an earlier point in my career. Right. And I did the webinar on like two hours of sleep. I had a, a solo cup filled with water, I swear. And everyone's like, is that Red Bull? Is that vodka? Yeah. Is it both? And I just like, I just brought the heat. I brought the energy at the trampoline and it was like my best webinar ever. Well, you've heard, I'm sure, that Tony Robbins does that backstage before he goes out. He jumps on the trampoline. So you're yeah. like Tony Robbins-esque, right? You know, that's your your thing. Exactly, wow. exactly. But anyway, enough about me and my energy. You bring the heat yourself. And I think everyone here wants to know your background, your story, the TED Talk. So I'll just yeah, right so over to you. Yeah, it was so funny. So we were talking before we got um, started recording about um, our authentic, I, I want to call it conversation last time, kind of our prep call. And um, yeah, and talking about I did a TEDx talk in, um, in Newport, Rhode Island in March, and kind of what came before that, what came during it, and then um, what kind of followed. So um, first, you know, um, uh, Dr. B is what I call myself because um, it's fun and approachable. When people call me Dr. Bridget Cooper, I tend to like look over my shoulder um, trying to figure out who the heck they're talking about because, uh, you know, and this kind of parlays into my story. You know, my dad was a high school dropout and I'm kind of being nice about that because he was actually, I believe, expelled from his last high school. So I don't know if you consider that dropping out. Um, and my mom... Um, went back to school in um, her 30s to get her undergraduate degree. Um, she had dropped out of, of college when she- Why was your dad expelled? Uh, why? Um, the story goes that he threw a teacher out the window. I think that does that. I mean, even oh. back in like the 1960s, that was enough, right? That's, uh, yeah. that's an interesting approach when you're mad at your teacher. I mean, you know, I tried not to follow in his footsteps. I mean, I got them close. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. no, I didn't do any wow. of that. So it was always funny when I got, you know, reprimanded in class for, it was always for talking, go figure, mm. um, or, you know, passing notes or something, or, you know, like gazing off, you know, gazing off into the atmosphere. Um, I thought, well, at least I'm not my dad, you know, yeah, I, can, right. I can get you off the second story window, you oh, know, but um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So there was that. But um, yeah, so I so I go by Dr. B and um, my mission is to help people understand to step into and to exercise their true authentic power so that they can stop giving it up and they can stop trying to grab it from others uh, so that we can all live within our own power. And I 
honestly think it's my, I, I remember talking in sixth grade about this. Um, they said, what's your dream? I said, world peace. And even then, um, you know, I had this um, Pollyanna view of things, but I really think that we could live such a peaceful existence if we all just stood in the power that was ours and didn't get it confused with what the power of other people's was, you know? Um, and that comes from, I think we all come to our message from a place, right? It's usually a place of pain that we've somehow transformed into purpose right. and that's mine. Um, and my purpose and, and talking about power came from the fact that the people in my life, the people who were entrusted with my care and development didn't have a handle on their own power. Um, when I was born, I was born into a domestically violent household. Um, my dad um, knocked my mother around a lot, knocked her teeth out. Um, and when I came into the environment, it, there was a new punching bag. Um, so, you know, growing up, um, it was, you know, in those early years anyway, I was directly exposed to my dad. And after my mom, um, broke free of that, um, I was indirectly um, exposed to him in other inappropriate ways because he just didn't know how to relate to a child. Um, he had not been raised right, and he didn't seem to take any interest in figuring that out in any real way. And I think when you have those early experiences and people have misused their power so much with you, you don't recognize what you're in charge of. You don't see violations of your trust in the same way other people do. Mm -hmm. um, so you end up stumbling into situations over and over again that um, where other people take your power. So I was not abused just once or twice. I mean, it was countless times because I think you, you know, for my experience of it was because you just, you don't see it coming or if you see it coming, you don't see the, the wrongness of it in the same way that other people might appreciate it. It's, it's like that old adage that, um, you know, if you throw a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out. But right. if you slowly turn up the heat, it doesn't even notice and it dies. Yeah. And I, I think of my, um, my life as being that kind of a slow boil experience. And, uh, and I, so when I talk about power, I talk about it from a real, not just a, let's talk academically about power structures and, you know, leadership power and that sort of thing. Yeah, I've done all that study. I've got my doctorate in educational leadership, but it goes beyond that for me. It goes to a real soul level recognition um, of the misuse um, and misattribution of, of power mm -hmm. dynamics and how we can in empowering ourselves can really heal ourselves, heal some of those old wounds. So we aren't transferring some of that pain, all of that pain, and then some to other people. Right. So, and, and when you were going through this, I mean, you were just a child, but your mother yeah. was an adult. And yeah. first of all, I just want to say, I'm very sorry that that happened to you and your mother. Yeah. And, you know, my mother was a victim of physical abuse from my yeah. father. So I know, you know, how, like I've seen it, I experienced it. What yeah. was going on with your mother? Like, did she stay? And if so, why did she stay or not leave? Because I think that's so, so interesting. Yeah. We see that and they think, oh, you know, this is the last time he'll change or I, yeah. I want to leave, but I can't like, what was going on there? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think um, in, in every domestic violence situation is, is different, has different nuances. Um, and I talk to a lot of domestic violence um, groups and I'm, I'm kind of connected with quite a few of them. And um, in the case of my parents, um, my mom was mentally ill walking into this relationship and she walked out mentally ill um, and she stayed mentally ill until the day that she died. And so um, her, her relationship with my dad, um, even to the point that right before she passed away, um, she was still deeply in love with my father. Um, she hadn't been with him in 40 years, um, 40 some odd years, and she was still deeply in love with him. Um, she had a very interesting view of people and it really reinforced my whole kind of um, upside down thinking about my role in all of the abuse. Mm -hmm. And her thinking was that we all choose to be in situations that we find ourselves in from birth on. 
and that um, therefore the responsibility for the dynamic is shared equally among the parties. Do you so agree in with her that? Opinion, you know, it was like metaphysics if you've ever studied any metaphysics. Yeah, yeah, very metaphysical. Yeah. And so her idea was that she had chosen to be in this domestically violent situation to serve some sole purpose. And so had I. Mm. Um, so we were all equally responsible right. um, when that was happening. So um, I... So I, I don't, so to answer your question, I, I, I kind of know, I deeply know what was going on with her. And at the same time, it's so remote from my experience that I can't touch it. Right. Um, it's not as simple as she was afraid of not being able to make it on her own or he threatened to kill her if she left. I wish it were that simple. Um, it wasn't. And so growing up, I, I knew he was a perpetrator, but he was the love of her life. So like I, wrapping my head around. And again, I was equally responsible for being there. So, you know, add that to the mix and it just kind of, it plays some serious head games um, on how you understand power, right? So yeah. back to the power conversation, you know, um, right. about who's in power, because according to her, I was born in power and I don't know how you make sense of that, you know, because there are imbalances of power and um, without power, you can't have choice. Right, right. Well, so, so that's going on. And, you know, it's interesting because I see a lot of people like that I'll coach or work with who they have one bad parent, but the other one is kind of the savior or, yeah. you know, one parent runs away, but then the other kind of takes care of them. So what was it like for you, you know, kind of dealing, sounds like with both parents kind of being off. And also I'm curious, like, when did you realize that this wasn't kind of the childhood that everyone else was going through. Yeah. When in life did you begin your, so to speak, journey? There, there were kind of, so I'll start with that piece because I think that's an interesting question. So I think like um, Hansel and Gretel, right? There were little breadcrumbs along the trail where I was like, huh, that, my life doesn't look like that. Or, huh, I made that comment and everybody kind of looked at me funny, you know? So I think there were like little things. Um, so I had this dual shame, like to cover it up. And then also no recognition that um, like this was so different. Like I, I, I kind of like, I lived in both places at the same time because sometimes I'd get weird reactions and then other times, um, you know, my family didn't talk about it being weird. So maybe it wasn't so weird. Like, I, I don't know. Um, and growing up with them, I, I, I remember I got a coach um, when I was going through my divorce because I had a, not surprisingly, I went into a, um, an abusive marriage. And I, I got this coach as I was getting out of the marriage and we had this conversation. She, oh, it made so much sense now. And I use it with my clients as well, that when you are dependent upon a person who has some measure of insanity, you have to believe that for your own safety and protection, that you're the crazy one. Because if you accept that they are crazy, then you aren't safe. But if you take on the responsibility of feeling crazy, then you can take on the responsibility of trying to be less crazy. You put the control back in your hands. That's the best way. I, I have seen that concept so yeah. many times. Like, you know, the child blames themselves. Right. But this is finally like the best way I've ever heard that concept explained. It was like, you know, I, I like the, the lights went off and I went, oh my God, yeah, because if I believe that they were crazy, then I'm then like going to be eaten by, you know, cougars and, you know, bears. But if I believe that I'm the one that's crazy and I just have to figure out how to fit in here into this like environment, then I've got some sense of control and with control comes safety. Wow. So you feel some odd, weird, like upside down, twisted sort of safety in that, that you're going to be able to figure it out. Once you figure it out, things will get better. That's amazing. Like I, like I said, I've never heard that concept like explained that way. And so thank you for sharing that. That's yeah, you're welcome. And so um, I think when it really dawned on me that I had been living in some sort of, you know, hell, um, and it was actually validated. It wasn't just like I had had experiences where I knew I was in hell and I was saying, I'm in hell, I'm in hell, I'm in hell. And everyone just kept kind of like pushing me back in there, you know? Right. Um, and it was when I went to college and I went into therapy 
And I sat and started describing my experiences to this therapist. And she was like, you know, that's not how people think about things. Or, you know, you know, that's not actually, you know, a real, you know, helpful way of thinking. I'm like, says you, I got here to this point thinking that way, you know, you're going to, so unpacking all of that and trying to dismantle, um, cause it's like scaffolding, right? Like you build a house, you have a bad foundation. You can't just like fix a wall and make the foundation better. You got to take the entire thing apart and start rebuilding the foundation. And I, and having gone through that, um, that was really when I started seeing all the cracks in the base. Right. But know, so I, how did you actually get into therapy? Because in my life, like when I was say 24, probably one year before I really started my journey, probably yeah. 24, 25, I was in a relationship and as crazy and psychotic as my own mother was, she was still in my picture, in the picture and yeah. came to dinner with like me and my girlfriend at the time. And she saw how much pain I was in, what I was going through. And she turned to me and she's like, Brendan, you need therapy. Like you yeah. need therapy. And like, I, I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I, you know, everything's fine. And it didn't happen until obviously like the relationship catastrophically ended, like so suddenly in my opinion that I was like, yeah. oh my God, I actually do need it. So thankfully something very big and bad happened. Like yeah. we were basically about to get engaged, get married. So uh, huge aha moment right. got me there. But when people were saying therapy, I was like kind of in denial and didn't do yeah. it. How did you actually get to therapy? So um, I started um, being sent to therapy in... Um, I want to say the first time I went, I was in grade school um, and two reasons. One, because I had divorced parents and back in the, in the um, late seventies, early eighties, totally dating myself, um, elementary school, they used to send us to this thing called banana splits because in my town, I have fairly affluent town. We lived in the the, you know, the poorest house in the nicest town. Mm -hmm. And, um, you were like one of like five kids in the entire elementary school who had divorced parents. Like nobody had divorced parents. So wow. I stood out. Right. And, um, to complicate things further, my dad was in jail. So that, you know, that made me like, you know, wow. a very interesting little test case. Yeah. Um, so I was in this group, which was really a therapy group, but a group therapy group, um, in, in grade school, and I went into more therapy after that because I was having like all these anxiety symptoms in elementary school because again, I was just trying to hold things together. Um, but I never really like opened up to anybody because I kept having the experience that my mom was stepping into the therapy to kind of like um, filter and hold back whatever didn't feel safe or right to her. So I would say things to the therapist and then the, my mother would come in and dispute them and they'd believe her because she was the adult, you know? And so it wasn't until at college when I found this one therapist that I actually just went, I'm going to trust you with everything because I found you. But the breaking point there was that um, I had had to that point, by the time I reached 16, I was on my third serious suicide attempt. And so when I was in college, I was in, I was basically, um, falling apart. I was, I was trying to figure out how to, whether I was going to choose that again, or I wasn't going to choose that again. I was really at the brink. I was calling the suicide hotline. I was saying like, here I am, I'm about to go to this place. And I, 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 I can't even describe the moment that it was, but I basically, this person got on the other end of the phone and was talking to me and I got angry. I got really angry that everything that had happened to me had now somehow become me. And I was angry to the point of rebellion of saying, nope, no, no, you don't get to take my life. Like that is, I will not go down with this ship. And, um, and so I decided that it was either recovery or death and there was really no in between. Um, and that was what got me into therapy was just making that really angry pronouncement that I wasn't going to be that person anymore. I wasn't going to take the burdens that just felt so much like they weren't mine. There was like some part of my soul that was just screaming out, no, no more, no more of this. It's amazing because, you know, the strength that you had, like I, I look at, I have a good friend now and she was telling me her story 
She's the most upbeat, positive life changer. And, you know, and she's young. And <clears throat> apparently during college, she was also suicidal and yeah. really, and I just, I'm like, how, like you're, you're first of all, you're beautiful, you're smart, you know, and this applies to you. And, and oh, my, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But, but it's just, um, it's, it's the resilience is unbelievable that you could go through that. But, but so, so tell me more about um, kind of the initial recovery. I mean, I mean, a lot of people listening, watching, I'm sure have either had these types of thoughts. Some right. of them might be actively going through this. So I, and I know it's, I mean, maybe it is an on off switch for some people, but it probably, I would imagine is more of a gradual, like, Oh yeah. So I mean, I used to say to myself over and over again, I've used this quote, I actually put it on in a frame for a friend of mine who's been struggling. And I said, the only way out is through. Yeah. I, I, it, like there were times where going back, cause, cause I think, especially with trauma histories, you know, I can't speak to all kinds of trauma. I can't speak to everybody's um, experience, but my experience was I went through it. It's my life, but going back to it and trying to have compassion and empathy for the little girl who was terrified and confused and, and hurt and all of that was like, cataclysmically scary, you know, and, um, and having to face that and face that every subsequent decision and experience and loss and mistake were all built on things that I, I didn't, I wasn't deserving of, but yet I'd convinced myself I was, was like this unpacking was just, it was like, it was like peeling, like scab off and ripping a scar open and like touching things that I had for so long compartmentalized and been able to intellectualize and put over here and to touch them and bring them back here was, it was it was exhausting. I mean, I, I was in therapy for two years, um, just shy of two years. And, you know, it's not like I, I walked out of there and I was like, I'm never going to make a mistake again in my life. I'm going to have healthy relationships. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, you know, diss myself. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm not going to do eating disorders anymore. It's not like that. It's just, I think of it like a, um, like a spiral staircase. You, you circle around the same, like core thing at the bottom of the staircase. Like you keep looking down at it, but you just, as you elevate, as you continue to recover, as you continue to make positive strides, as you add more and more um, healing pieces to your journey, you get further and further away from it, but it's still there. Like you can still see it. It's just not, it's not so um, overwhelming and dominating of your like moment to moment kind of experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I, I, did I answer it? I mean, I think, so yeah, like, and, and I think also every time something touches it. So like when my dad died, you know, in 1995, so I was like 24. So I'd been through therapy. I'd like, I, you know, I'd figured things out. I knew, you know, where I was with that. And then he died. And then I'm like, whoop, back in therapy, because now all of a sudden, now the story has changed and now there's no second chance and now there's no recreating it. And now there's no, you know what I mean? So like, I think there are things that pull you back, but I think there's a way to get up the staircase far enough away from it that you can operate at a higher level and be able to see that train wreck coming sometimes and be able to attend to the pain before it takes you, you know, down and off your footing again. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's amazingly powerful. And I, I want to revisit more about like your journey and your process yeah. and how you do that. But I just want to shift gears. We got to talk about the TED talk or TEDx oh. talk, right? Oh, yeah, we gotta do that. I was actually going to ask one other question. Let's, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to ask right. this question, then we'll do TED, then we'll come back to your journey. Okay. So I, I do, uh, in my practice, I do relationship coaching, dating coaching, couples coaching, right. all, you know, you see, see yeah. all. It's, you know, in the year we operate in, it's modern family. I'm, I'm a guy, I'm a girl. I date. But, but, so it's like, you can have, and I have clients who have the healthiest, most stable parents or home situation, and then they go out and have an affair and bust up their marriage. So like, and then you see people who have had more similar backgrounds like us, where there's the toxicity and the dysfunction, then that also repeats itself. So I think anyone listening would benefit from some like relationship advice. But uh, yeah. I'm curious, like, you know, from your past, obviously seeing what happened between your parents, you mentioned being divorced. I'm curious kind of 
how these things showed up in your relationships and then how you've grown and what you've learned about healthy relationships that you could share with listeners? Yeah. Um, so I think, um, I knew, I, I think that the pieces that drove me, um, in relationship was a couple of things. One, the belief that everything that, um, injured another was my fault and everything that the other person was going through was mine to fix. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was not only an abusive situation I was in, you know, or watching with my parents' marriage, but my dad was also an addict and my mother had um, her own addictions. So what were they addicted to? Um, my dad was a meth and heroin addict. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, it was more alcohol. Um, right. And I, for, in what in being in those systems I just I took on like if somebody was sad it was my job to make them happy if somebody was broken it was my job to fix them so I was very I mean like the poster child for like Al-Anon and ACOA like you know codependence anonymous type oh my god like (laughs) it's so 12 steppy over here because I was such a codependent you know and um, they probably have me in their literature I'm not really sure but um, so I think it showed up there and it also showed up because my mom's intense love for my dad, I wanted to replicate that. So I went into very emotionally, like, I mean, 3000 miles an hour, let's get engaged in four days after I meet you kinds of relationships, because I was searching for that adrenaline rush that again, part of an addicted family system and also having watched that being my model for what love looks like. Right. It wasn't about compatibility and, you know, let's spend time together. It was about love me or, you know, dominate me. And like, you know, just we consume one another kind of right. thing, you know, um, which is honestly like a lot of young love sometimes looks like that, like falling in love. That's why they call it falling because you're like an idiot and you you know, hit your head on the floor. But, um, so yeah, I think that was what was, uh, what was in my early experiences and what I've learned. And it actually, um, was a, a comment I made to, um, a significant, um, relationship of mine not so long ago is I said to him, as we were ending the relationship, I said, I want to thank you for waking me up to my pain. Because I think that one of the things that we do in relationships is that we, we find relationships where we can hopefully find a way to honor and heal more of our, our pain journey of getting away from some of those things that have hurt us and, and becoming fuller and more um, abundant and joyful people. But we have, sometimes we have some hurts that we've kind of tucked somewhere or we thought we'd kind of gotten past them. And then someone shows up in our lives and we're, we're triggered, you know, like they're poking at that, that sore spot. And, so I think I've learned that to recognize and respect and honor that versus either trying to run away from it or getting really upset about it. You know, just saying like, wow, you're here to do that. Okay. I got you. Like now I got to go work on that because if I don't work on it, then this was for nothing. And I'm not really going to grow from this relationship in the way that I have the opportunity to do, you know? That's so. amazing. It's, I mean, it's so true. I, I learned, I've learned so much from relationships this year in my own journey. Yeah. And I just had to write this down. So people watching it on YouTube or on the screen. Waking right me now, up to my pain. Thank yeah. you for waking me up to my pain because I, I write these things down. It's like, and, and in my last relationship, um, obviously my past partner showed up with a lot of issues and, yeah. you know, but number one, I was attracted to her at least yeah. subconsciously because she was presenting those warnings and red flags. But number two, I started reading a lot of Eckhart Tolle and uh, he, he wrote the power of now and practicing the power yeah. of now. And he talks a lot about um, relationships and your partner are not the cause of pain. They bring out the pain that is already inside of you. Exactly. But boy, do we get that confused because we look at them and we're like, I can't believe you did that to me. And that's not to take the responsibility off of other people's shoulders for injuring us because they do. Yeah. But I think about it like this. I used to say this to my daughter and say, you know, so this situation on scale of one to five, one is there's like, you know, you have a slight tingle on your arm and five is like the house is burning down, right? Like in terms of catastrophe. 
when you're experiencing a three, like the actual thing that's happening is a three, but you're responding like it's a five, the gap is yours. Uh, that's, it's that's the gap. a good analogy. Yeah, I like it's that. It's not that the three isn't happening, right? It's that so often what derails us in relationships is we respond to a three like a one. So we like, we don't look at it. We don't touch it. We don't talk about it. We, we you know, compensate for it. Or we respond to a three like it's a five or a that, one. That's like really interesting. I didn't know you could go in the other direction that you could like underreact, which is, oh, also, absolutely. is also unhealthy. And it's also your responsibility. Right. Because then what happens is over time, and we know this, we, we see it, we respond to a, a three, like it's a one over and over and over again. And then we blow like Mount St. Helens and they're like, what happened? I don't understand. Why are you getting so upset? It's because you've been jamming all those threes down for so long that you're building all these resentments and then you're like, you know, you break. So, yeah. so, okay. So I, for me, it was probably like a three and I was acting like it was a five. So I got to take responsibility for that spread. But right. what do you tell people either in your own experience or people you work with, like they come to you, Dr. B, this guy is doing this. And so it's a, you know, it's a three, and they're acting either like it's a five and they're freaking out or they're shoveling it down. Like you said, how do you, you know, for the listeners who might be doing that, how do they sort of take responsibility and process their side of it? Yeah. I mean, I think the question that I ask, I think the, um, the helpful question that I ask is not what is this person doing to you, but what is this person inviting you to look at? You know, like, what is this? How can you use what is happening right now for for your benefit? Like, that's that's the core of it, because, you know, we bump into all sorts of wonderful people and a whole litany of idiots. Right. And if we take every if we like, you know, they're on an emotional roller coaster and we jump on every single time or we, you know, are responding and it's, it's hurting us like that's on us. So for me, I, I, I ask them not what is it that this person is doing to you, but what is this person inviting you to do to grow? You know, how can you use this experience to help you be a bigger, better, more honest, more, you know, compassionate, whatever, whatever your, your scale is person. Yeah. And then a relationship is doing its job, which is to not just spend time. I mean, that's one function of a relationship, but in my opinion, my, my ethos for that is, is to elevate you is to, is to, you know, um, deepen and expand your awareness and make you a better person. And if it's not doing that, then maybe it's, you know, I guess you can hang out, but you know, it's not, <laughs> there might be something out there better for you. So, um, it's coming at it with gratitude and again, when I go back to that power conversation, where is your power? Because when you're looking for how it can serve you and how you can become a better person in response to that, that's where your power is. Yeah, absolutely. So I've seen this before. I'm curious what you think about this quote. I, I've, I read somewhere, it's like something from 90% to 95% of the success of a relationship comes down to partner selection. I'm curious if you agree with that or not. And I'm also curious for people who have certain pasts. I think most really, most families have some level of dysfunction and most women and men select partners. Like, you know, you were talking about you pick the highs and lows. I've done the exact same thing. I've selected partners to replicate my mother, my past, the abuse. Um, how do you get over that? How do you, it's like, yeah, I know that she is a stable, good girl, but I want the actress who lives downtown who can't do a committed relationship. So do you agree? What's your take on the importance of partner selection? And number two, if it is that important, how do we get excited about the right one who doesn't feel, you know, the Hollywood juice is flowing type thing? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, again, I think that goes back to the, to the healing journey, right? Is that, um, if you know that you're attracted to a certain archetype and you've identified that part of what that is for you is that it reminds me you of the, you know, roller coaster or like amphetamine high of, you know, that was given to you by your dad or your mom or whatever, then, you know, okay that's where the personal responsibility and empowerment comes in is, okay, so you want that. So you're choosing that. 
So then don't, don't play victim when it goes badly, right? It goes off the rails, go, okay, that was a fun ride, right? Like that was great. Um, but if you know that it's going to cause you unnecessary pain, then it's also your responsibility to take that pain and to use it to heal the pain, right? They're, they're showing up in your life. It's not like some weird casting party, like you're drawing them to you or you're going toward them because there's unfinished business. And if you can take responsibility for trying to finish or, or at least, um, you know, travel down that road of that business, getting that business taken care of, then that's what makes that useful and worthwhile. Um, in terms of 90% of relationship success being partner selection, mm, I don't know if that fits for me because sure, there's a lot on the making the right decision. But relationships are a decision, marriage or otherwise, a decision you decide to be in every single day. You know, in my experience, relationships that fail are those that, I mean, yeah, sure, there can be like core incompatibility. Why did we get together? But for those who that have made a commitment and then it slips away and then they're like over is because they didn't wake up every day and say, how can I build this relationship today? How can I hold this relationship in some sort of care? And if you don't, if you aren't in a process of building or maintaining a relationship, you're in the process of destroying it. And that's, that to me is, is the core. And Gottman and um, his wife have been doing, you know, marital research for decades. Julie. And have you have you read the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse? Yeah, I'm actually um, I'm actually level one trained in their couples counseling. Nice, yeah, they're pretty great. I, I so, met yeah. them. I saw them. Uh, they were in New York for this. I was just there like a month ago. How great! So yeah, all right. So I'm preaching the choir. So um, in that, like, you'll be amused then that you know I was in my first um, one of my first sessions in marriage counseling. You know, years years and years ago, and the the woman said, "Wow." In about five minutes, and I said, what? She said, I just saw all four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I was like, <laughs> and I didn't even know the book, and I was like, that sounds pretty bad. Not, um, that can't be good. Yeah, that can't be. I feel like that wasn't a vote of confidence about where we are right now. So, um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's helpful. Yeah. All right, so I think it's time for the TED Talk story. Oh, my God. Okay, so... um. I'll go through this a little quickly because we're, we're, we're cranking down in our time. People are going to be like, how long is your show? This was not supposed to be a, a late special. <laughs> uh, so TEDx talk. So um, my like vision for myself over um, for a few years saying, oh my God, Bridget, you got to do a TED talk. You got to do a TED talk. And so I, I made for my, um, my agenda for, um, for it to happen in 2018. So I had to kind of start kicking um, the tires in 2017 that I was going to do a TED talk um, or TEDx talk. People talk about TED talks, TEDx and TED are not exactly synonymous, but they're um, TEDx are independently run versions of the okay. TED um, brand. Yeah. So um, from a licensing standpoint, I'm trying to be very careful. I did a TEDx talk, not a Ted to a little different anyway so um but same parameters and uh, so I made it my mission I was going to do a TEDx talk and what I wanted to talk about was I wanted to talk about yeah sure my personal history because it is a compelling story of, of um, recovery and rising up through pain and trauma but there was one aspect I really wanted to talk about which was um, a way of taking a traumatic history like that or any history any experience any just day-to-day -day living really um, and make life less painful because like that philosophy about power, I believe that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people. And the more that we are in pain, the more likely we are to set ourselves up in situations that bring us more pain because of its familiarity and our, you know, blindness, you know, to what's going to create it. And also we're likely to cause other people pain. And so if we could dial back our own pain collection, we could dis we could dismantle those pain, you know, towers and collections that other people um, are, are having. So, um, so I wanted to do a talk about that. 
so I do a lot of public speaking. I do keynotes and, you know, things like this and, you know, um, seminars all the time. And I have a certain framework for them. I kind of know some of the top points I'm going to make, but how I'm going to get there, I don't do a heck of a lot of real, you know, deep planning and scripting when I do that because I, I'm authentic in the moment. I know my, I've got a, a suitcase of, of ideas of things I can talk about. So I just go with them and I go with the audience and I feed off of some of the conversations I've had. Um, but at TEDx Talk, is a very different animal because you've got 18 minutes and because I was going to be talking about some very hard-hitting subjects some real gut punches um, I wanted to be able to do it in a way and orchestrate it in a way that people could actually hear the message as I was saying it and really be able to take it because if they didn't hear the message if they couldn't incorporate it and really make sense of it then what was the sense of doing you know getting on that stage so i had that as my primary um piece and the second was i wanted to have a tape like the whole point of doing a tedx talk or a ted talk is to have the tape on youtube and be you know cycled around and be able to refer to it because i do talks all the time but very rarely are they taped so this was a, a wonderful opportunity right. so i got the call to go to tedx newport and um and the topic the title of my talk is the secret to making life hurt less and i've kind of covered a little bit of what that looked like um of my life of um of pain and um, and I wanted to give some uh, some framework about my journey to give get credibility um, with the audience about I understand pain I mean I, I know your pain is probably different than mine we all have different experiences of pain but I do understand what pain looks like and here's what I did to try to get myself out of it and away from it and not recycling it and handing it off to other people and so I scripted the talk. I did so much prep work. I, you know, I, I timed it. I made sure the word count was, you know, with a pace was appropriate for under 18 minutes. I, I, I shrunk it down to about 16 and a half. So I'd have time in case I slowed down or, you know, whatever, there were some delays because I didn't want Ted and, you know, big, bad old Ted, you know, cut whoever Ted is, um, you know, cutting and snipping pieces of the talk that weren't what I wanted. Not that they really do that much, but just in case. So I practiced it everywhere. I was I was practicing it, timing it. I my dogs probably could have recited it. You know, I I was doing it nonstop in front of audiences on my own via web. You know, um, you know, call, and got to the day of the talk. And one of the things that I had been very clear about was that when I saw people's eyes, because I make again some gut punching statements that when I looked at people in the eye, it threw me because I was seeing this, the, the, you know, I'm an empath. And so I was seeing their face change and I wanted to like comfort them or like, you know, hold them in that, or, you know, say something funny to take them out of that, you know, um, upset space. And I knew I, that's not the point of my talk. Um, and I couldn't be in that role with them based on the context and the kind of the, just how a TEDx talk looked. So I practiced not looking in people's eyes and then looking in people's eyes and like seeing how it threw me and how I sped up really fast when and tried to get past the ugly parts when I was looking at people in the eye. So when I got to TEDx Newport, they had already done um, a, a run through of the talks and they knew that mine had to go last because from... Um, you know, from a, an audience experience standpoint, if they put mine any earlier than last, no one would have been able to attend to anything after mine because mine was so hard to listen to. Um, so and they so they knew put it, based on who you were and your sort of content, they were like, we're putting this at the end because it's gonna yeah. be they were like, nobody's following Bridget because that's, wow. yeah, she's going to, she's going to hit them and they're going to be like, uh, you know, and, and that's kind of also kind of a compliment of how powerful and moving you a little bit. It was, it was also for an empath, very hard to listen and watch everyone else's talks and experiences and right. they get off stage and they're like, Oh my God, I totally didn't do that. Right. Or, yeah, Oh, I you're, you're better. Your best is going first from your own vantage point. Right. right like get out of here. Like, let me Stand do it. Out, I'm done. Go meditate and chill. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm out. I'm done. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went last. And this was a full day, like, so I was at 5 p.m. And we'd been going since we the event had started at 11, but I'd been at the event since nine in the morning. 
So I did everything I could in terms of a, you know, like self-care perspective, trying to, you know, you know, skedaddle off into the wings and like stay away from some people, you know, just trying to protect my energy. Right. Um, and so anyway, we get to the, to the moment where I'm going to get, you know, sent on stage and um, the woman at the, I, I'm not blaming you, Alyssa, swear to God, but um, the coordinator of the event is sitting at the door and she says, Bridget, you know, you're next. She's like, we did it. We got through the whole day without one oh, problem. Alyssa. And I oh. looked at her and I was like, I'm sorry. I, I obviously did not hear you correctly. Did, did you just, did you just jinx us? Jinx. Like, anyway. So, Alyssa. Alyssa, it didn't help anything. <laughs> Doesn't help. So I walk out on stage, right? And I start delivering this, you know, pretty like hard hitting, powerful talk. And um, I get about two minutes in and I say the following statement. This was the one that I knew was going to level the audience. And I said it because, again, I needed to stand in the light of what had been um, what I'd been ashamed of for so long, like somehow taken what someone else had done to me and made it mine. It wasn't mm -hmm. mine. I didn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't me to hold for me to hold. It was theirs. Um, and then handing that back, there's, there's some fear there. And so I, I stood there and I made this statement um, about two minutes in and I said, um, and now, mind you, I said about that eye contact thing in the auditorium, I knew that if I looked at eyes, I would come undone. So I instead looked at the three exit signs. So the left, the right, and center from a camera point of view, I figured the camera would be fooled to think that I was looking at people. And I figured with my big old fake eyelashes, nobody was going to be able to tell I wasn't looking them in the eye anyway in the audience. So it, it, I could play to the audience and not actually see the audience. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at the exit signs. And I so the statement that I made was, the first time my mother saw my father beat me, I was eight, eight weeks old. Wow. Okay, so I heard your breath, right? So in the audience, someone, some number of people, I heard. <gasps> yeah. And Brendan, I swear to you, I heard it. And I was like, oh, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. nope, nope, I can't. Nope, nope. That was worse than a freaked out facial expression, right? Well, what, how did it make you feel? What was your reaction? The, I think the inner dialogue was, oh no, I've done it. I hurt them. Mm. I shouldn't have said that. Like all of those tendrils back to the place that I had mm. been convinced that I brought that on myself. Yeah, like it's your fault. It, it was my fault that I should be ashamed, that I shouldn't talk about it, that this shouldn't be in the light. All those things that... You know, I swear I'd work through 15 ways to Sunday, but standing there on that stage and hearing that gasp, whoo, talk about getting up in my head. And so I went on another maybe, I don't know, 20 seconds, you know, kind of went to my next page, to my next slide. And I got in the middle of a sentence and I stumbled over the sentence, ending it in a way that I knew it didn't go. And then I went completely and utterly blank. And I don't mean just like a little blank. I mean, I stood there and I couldn't remember what I just said, what I was about to say, what slide I was on. I was full on completely clear of any thought about the talk other than my meta talk, which was, oh, hell no, this is not happening. <laughs> like I didn't plan this. I planned everything not to be like this. I'm like, looking around, I'm like thinking, and then I, you know, I teach mindfulness. So I went into my, you know, prayerful, let me find my inner peace and strength and, you know, focus. Nothing. I stood there in silence. Now imagine this is, there's like 400 people in the audience, about 50 of them, I think were there for me. And then it's being live streamed around the world. So I've got friends watching in Switzerland and Italy. My aunt's watching in California. I've got friends in DC, Florida. Are, like, you, yeah. are you pacing or are you just no, sort of no, standing I'm there? No, I'm standing in one spot because one of the things about a TED talk is that, or a TEDx talk is that 
um, they assume that you are not an experienced speaker. So they have the red circle, right? So they make you stay pretty close because they don't want you pacing, burning, you know, grooves in the stage and making it an awkward talk. And because most uh, TEDx talks are volunteer run, they don't have professional videographers most times to be able right. to um, take in a movement like that on a stage. So they hold you in basically a bath mat sized circle. Yeah, so the red circle. Yeah. Yeah. But a tiny one, like if you look at a TED talk versus a lot of TEDx talks, not every TEDx talk is like this, but our TEDx sure. talk, I swear to God, you could, you could fit two of those in my bathroom, the size of this little rug. <laughs> and so I'm standing there on the rug and I'm like, whoa, like, yeah, I got nothing. So I stood there for 23, 24 seconds. Nothing. And now imagine the audience, like, and I've talked to the audience members and people at home and what was going on in their heads. And they're all just like, oh, oh my God, she needs to start talking again. And some people were like, is she doing that for effect? Because she gave us that. Uh, like when Mr. Rogers did a whole minute silent on TV, is this all part of the act? Right, right. <laughs> and then, you know, then they thought maybe it's a technical difficulty. Her mic isn't working or there's a slide that isn't changing. Like they don't know. They've not seen this. I mean, some people have seen it before, but you know, a lot of people hadn't. So I look at them and after like 24 seconds, I was like, mm, mm -mm, nope, it's not here. There's nothing. Like I, I, I can't find it. I'm not going back. I'm not, my power, talk about power, is not here on this stage. My power is backstage where my, my speech notes are because that's the only place I've got anything. So I looked at the audience and I put my hand and my finger up and I said, give me a minute. And I walked off stage. And I walked off and now, now that woman who had said, Nothing yeah. ever goes. Alyssa. She's like, oh, I mean, she just, you know, I think they were all like, you know, like handling like a tiger, you know, like trying right. to figure out how are you going to manage this person coming yes. back into your space. And it's this teeny tiny little backstage area with all the volunteers, all the, you know, um, uh, the speakers, everybody. And I'm like, uh, they're like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I need my speech. And I'm like beckoning somebody in the back to grab the, Hit the cards. Yeah. Like somebody grab that thing that's on the top of that black bag over there and pass it over. It's like mosh pit style. They're like passing it over everybody <laughs> right, to get it to me. And I look at it and I'm like, you know, sliding into, you know, third page. And I go, oh, that's what English looks like. You know, that yeah. those are the words that were supposed to be in my head. And that's all I did. I handed it back to them. I was off stage, I think for 44 seconds or 47 seconds. Wow. And I, I, as you know, people pleaser that I am when the, you know, woman in charge said, do you want to start at the top? I said, yes. And then I went, no, I want to start where I stopped. Like cue up that last slide. Right. So I went back out on stage and, you know, of course, in the meantime, the MC had gone on and been like, I'm sorry, everybody, for the delay. We're experiencing some technical difficulties. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, technical difficulties in my head. Yeah, brain so, difficulties. Yeah, my brain needed a reboot, you know. Yeah. Um, so I get back on stage, and of course, everyone starts applauding. And I'm like, uh-uh, no, 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 we're not cheering for that nonsense. Like, that's no, 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 because you're going to make me emotional being all appreciative of the fact that I have yeah. walked back out on stage. Yeah, just sit there, be quiet. No more gasping. Yeah. Let me tell yeah, you. Need, yeah, everybody needs to just zip it. All right. Yeah. We're just, we're done with the sound at this point. Yeah. So I get back out there. I, I actually put my hand out to like shush people. Like I shush my children when I'm on the phone, like mm -mm, talk to the hand. And, um, and then I stood on that circle and I thought, where was I when I lost my mind? Like, where were my feet? Where were my hands? And I thought, I think I had it. I think I got it. Like where, I mean, my hands were like this and, you know, my feet were a certain spread apart. And then I counted one, two, and then I went because I thought, now you edit things like this, right? I thought I need a space right. for the editor to be able to lay the tapes on wow. top of one another. Yeah. So that there doesn't look like I ever left the stage. Which was my experience when I watched it. You couldn't see. 
you have no idea where it was, right? When we talked, so I got it pulled up here and we're going to do a screen share in a minute. So, because I've been to put this on YouTube so people could watch the video as well. Um, but I want to know exactly where it was. And we're going to pinpoint it together and show what happened or what. Oh didn't. my God. Here we go. <laughs> Ready? Yeah. All right. Tell All me right, when. Here we go. Oh, there I am. Look at me on my little dot, my teeny tiny little. Okay. Go back. Go back. Okay. So, um, no, go. Okay. So about two minutes, uh, two. Okay. What was it? It was two, three. Okay. Hang on a second. It was three fourteen. It was three fourteen, I believe when I stopped. Yeah. Three fourteen. Okay. So go ahead and go to like, yeah, three, how about three Oh eight and let's listen. So hang on a second. Okay, hold on. Let me, um, I'm going to take my headphones out so you can hopefully hear this too. All right. Yeah. So go to like, yeah, go to like, yeah, three, three, that should work. It's only like 10 seconds. Long after they stop, we continue turning our pain into suffering. How? Think about it. Oh, okay. So go back. So it's about, it must be because when they did the, um, the intro, so it must be about two, I think I sent it to, I think it was like 242. 242? Yeah, go to 242. I'm listening for the, the words I was saying. When we get hurt, we want someone to tend to Right here. To Hang on. Protect us from being harmed again. When no one does this. Right there. So that cut. Right there, in that break right there when they did that. That cut. Yeah, I, um, I had started over again and they, like, that was it. So I... I had done the, you know, the previous statement and then I'd started that slide and talked about what happens when you're in pain. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I like, so anybody watching it, like people have seen it since they're like, where was the walk off? Like I missed that. I'm like, yeah, I, cause when we first talked and you were telling me about it, I was like, I watched your Ted talk. I didn't see that. Yeah. There's no, there's no departure, but there was. And so yeah. there was this just, again, I, I think they, I actually started again um and started from the top and i think what they may have done i'd have to go back and like look at both tapes and like have them on two different screens and try to yeah. figure out exactly how they edited it but i had gone back to the beginning and restated a sentence that i'd already stated said, yeah. you know what i mean yeah so i think what they did was they kept the sentence that i didn't mess up they broke it by a camera angle Right. where I started again. So they took out, I think, my mess up as well as when I first got back on stage. Do you know what I mean? Yep, because yep. like how they sliced it, but I'm not, I, I'm not a, exactly sure how they did it, but I, but my intention was for them to be able to just like, whoop, you yeah. know, like yeah. that never happened. Yeah. Um, but I was actually, when they did it and they, and they put it up on, on, on site, I was actually kind of sad that they took out the break. Mm, Cause that's sort of like an important, yeah. I, I guess my next question is like, what is the break? What did that symbolize? What did it mean to you? What's the takeaway for you and for the viewers? Like what's the moral to that story? Yeah. I mean, so a couple of things, well, a, a number of things, but first the symbolism of it was that, um, so I had said in the beginning of the talk, when I kick off the talk, I say, I have a superpower. And my superpower is I can walk through fire and I'm going to show you how to do that here today. And I think, and so many people came up to me afterward and they were like, uh, yeah, you can. And yeah, you did. Yeah, pretty much, you know, like, you know, walking off a stage and then walking back. Right. Like that's a pretty big deal. Like I, I, I didn't feel I didn't feel any choice in the matter. I think people were like, Oh my God, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, I don't know how I couldn't have because part of when I, when I spoke about that whole, my, um, my pain and turning my pain into some sort of purpose, like I needed to take that experience and take my power back by being able to, to stand outside of the shame and stand outside of the, um, of the, their story and their, my compassion for how broken they were and like all of that stuff and not out of anger, but out of clarity. And if I had gone off that stage and let that sigh or anything else derail me in some way, all of what I had worked to prove 
would have somehow been cast into some other light. You know, it would have been questioned like, oh, you know, she's, you know, it's still see what happens when that happens. You never really get over it. You never really come back. You never really heal. You never really can be powerful. And I was like, I had some choice words. I won't put them on your show, but I was like mm, that, like that's not happening. And so it was never a question for me whether or not I was going back out. It was just how, like yeah. how I was going to make that through because I was, I, the original um, title of my talk was how rage saved me and forgiveness redeemed me. And if I couldn't, I used that like anger, that like indignance, that, um, that rebellion of like, uh-uh, no, 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 whatever that was, whatever this was, whatever was happening is not going to take away my ability to stand in this moment and share this message and try to bring some healing to people because the more people that I can touch, you can touch, like we can help in whatever fashion it is, whether I'm doing a corporate, you know, retreat or, you know, some leadership assimilation work or helping to change some culture or I'm coaching somebody individually or somebody's picking up one of my books. When I do that, I remove, I hope some level of pain out of this world. I take that out. Like you can't destroy energy, but you can destroy pain, right? By making it into something better and, and bigger. So maybe, yeah, I guess maybe you can't destroy pain. You just change it anyway, but you change it into something that is good. When I do that, when you do that, when we do that collectively and individually, we then prevent another pain from happening. It's like the butterfly effect. It's like, it's felt all over the world. And for me, getting back on that stage meant being having that ability to do that in some large scale, big stage sort of way. And I was like, mm -hmm, yeah, I've got an appointment with destiny. And, and that, that is that stage is where I need to be right now. Mm. So yeah. And I, and I think if I had gone, the other thing I talk about with people is presence. We spend so much time in regret or in anxiety and fear that had I gone to either one of those two places of looking back at all the failures I'd had in the past or all the voices that were sucking me back in with that sigh or whatever that was, if I'd stayed there or if I'd gone too far in the future and started fearing what haters were going to be saying about me and how criticized I was going to be for blowing my TEDx opportunity, I wouldn't have been able to get back on that stage because all that head trash would have held me away. Right. So staying in that moment and saying, what can I do right now? What is, where's my power right now? My power wasn't on the stage. I went and got my notes. My power wasn't in the applause. It was in getting them silent. You know, mm -hmm. like that was, those were my, I feel like main takeaways. Yeah, no, it's incredible. And I'm, I'm so honored to have you share the story behind the story because it's so powerful. And I mean, I've learned so much just from this conversation and from last time we spoke and before we do like the final wrap up and everything, yeah. you know, we talked about going through therapy, doing healing work on yourself. I think everyone listening or watching is either going through some form of pain or suffering or has or will, you know, what would you say were the most powerful things that you've done in your life to heal the pain or, or move forward or become a, you know, in a better place of mental stability or fulfillment? that people you could leave people with to go implement in their own lives? Um, I think a couple of things and I, I could go on for hours about this. So that is one of the toughest questions you've asked me. I'm trying to, Oh, right. Last minute. Yeah, you got two I'll minutes to, entire... to say how you went from suicidal to amazing. Right. So I, um, so two things. Um, I think we forget um, that we were put here with beauty, with power, with love, and with unending potential. And the world can kick that out of us, but it's not ever gone. It's just in there waiting to be peeled open, you know, like take back the layers, right? Like un take the onion off and find that, you know, that core. So first is knowing that like, divinely that there is nothing 
that can take that away from you. It can cloud it, it can obscure it, but it cannot remove it. So that like, that's like one major um, awareness piece is just that there is that in you. It's not about having a coach like you or me find, you know, like create it or, you know, like cook it up in some lab. It's in there, you know? Um, and based on that, the only way to get to a place of not having the pain and the tragedies and the trauma and all of that define us and run our lives is to bless and release is to thank it for its role. Kind of like that, you know, the bad relationship in our life of saying, you know what, thank you for the journey, right? Thank you for waking me up to my pain, you know, of being able to look at it and know that as I heal it, I open up another space for me to step into that beauty that I was put here to share. And, and any kind, anytime we are collecting pain and layering things on and on and on, it's not just like distorting us, it's hiding us. And so I, you know, I, I, I encourage anybody to like reach out to you for, you know, relationship coaching or me and, you know, um, and touch base because, you know, we're on this journey together and it's, it's a one shot deal guys. So, you know, let's make it the very best that it can be. Absolutely. Um, now the most important question I saved for last, what is your favorite dinosaur dessert and city in the world? Oh my God. (laughs) All right. So, um, I have to say T-Rex because I feel like that, like, I, that's like my, you know, my, my, my dinosaur. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, how am I going to live my life trying to find mm. stuff, grab stuff, <laughs> roll, paper roll, make my bed. Right. You know, that, uh, that feeling of like, you're so scary and powerful. Right. But like your arms just don't work for the purpose. <laughs> right? You know, well, um, so he's my like comical guy. And I always think of him as him. He's, is that weird? Anyway. Um, all right. So you said that you said dessert. Oh, every one of them. Um, but I'm going to have to go with um, warm out of the oven chocolate chip cookies. Mm. Oh, that's the right answer. Oh my God. That's what we were looking for. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lots and lots of milk. Lots and lots of milk. And what was the third one? Favorite city in the world. City in the world. Ooh, um, I'm gonna have to go with Amsterdam. Yeah, great. I, oh my God, I love and and a backup like a tie almost for for first place would be Reykjavik. Iceland. Oh, I was just there for the second time earlier this year. I love. Oh, it. stop it! The bed and breakfast, the little the downtown eating, the pubs. Yeah. Like, oh my God. And I just oh. went to Dublin, and Dublin was amazing too. Like great city, but oh my goodness, yeah, those like so many European cities, honestly. And, you know, yeah, love them. So. Awesome. Well, Dr. B Thank in you. the house, um, people are going to want to hit you up because if I didn't have like five coaches already, I'd be working with you. Hey, thanks. But, but where, where can people find you, learn more, read your books, get more information? Yeah, the easiest place is probably just to go to my website because I think everything branches off from there, whether it's the TED Talk or the Amazon bookstore. All my books are on Amazon. Um, so you can go to drbridgetcooper.com. So drbridgetcooper.com. Um, and on the homepage, there's, you know, email me, you know, my the phone number that's on there. You can text that phone number. I would love to hear from you. Please go watch my TED Talk. Share it um, if yeah. you think it's a message worth sharing. And, um, you know, let's just keep on this healing train because the more we do that, you know, the, the more abundant our lives can be. And isn't that the point? Uh, exactly. Well, thank you so much again for coming thank on you. the show. Like, I, I don't know about the listeners, but I learned a ton from this and I'm so honored to have you on here.